the main thing is that being a refugee is an experience, it's not an identity. Hello and welcome to the Blind Spot Podcast episode three. My name is Rhys, I'm the co-founder at the Blind Spot and I'm recording this on the 12th of February 2016. The Blind Spot is an inclusive space where people can tell their stories, support one another and talk about social, political, community and disability issues. And with that in mind, in today's episode, we are going to talk about refugees, Syria, Lesbos and a lot more. But before we do that, let's give an update on our topic for episode one, which was the junior doctor strike. Now, since episode one of the podcast, which went up on the 16th of January, the doctors had a strike again on the 10th of February. And in response to that, Jeremy Hunt decided to impose the contracts. With this, there's a huge amount of discontent with the junior doctors, as well as morale is apparently very, very low. As I talked about on the first podcast, the junior doctors dispute is not an isolated incident as part of a bigger picture and it's one fight among many which we're going to have to embark on to keep fighting for the NHS and to keep making sure that it is as a public health service and not just privatised into oblivion. So what you're about to hear is an interview conducted by Hattie Sampson, my co-founder at The Blind Spot, and she is interviewing Harriet Paynton, who has been volunteering in Lesbos and working with refugees in Istanbul, as she'll explain during the interview. And I can safely say what Harriet talks about in the interview is some very important details which don't get picked up or at least don't get broadcast to any substantial degree in the mainstream media. And I think she gives an excellent first person account into exactly what is going on. One technical point to mention about the interview is that from the 40 to 45 minute point, Hattie's lav mic stopped working, so we lost audio from her. So unfortunately, Hattie will go a bit quiet in her questions and comments. For the majority, for the first 40 minutes, it's all fine. So without further ado, I hand over to Hattie. Hello and welcome to Blind Spot. Uh, my name is Hattie and today we're interviewing Harriet and her volunteering on Lesbos. Okay, Harriet, um, tell us about it then. So there are two camps in Lesbos where people get sent to for registration and they're divided by nationality. Really? So there is a camp for Syrians mm -hmm. and a camp for non-Syrians. Mm -hmm. um, and the non-Syrian camp is where I spent most of my time because it is the place that receives the least resources. Really? Um, and is suffers from structural inequalities in comparison to the Syrian camp, which is full of UNHCR, like prefab houses, uh, a short registration time of a few hours, at the most a day or two compared to the non-Syrian camp, where there was at one point 5,000 people sleeping outside, waiting between five days and nine days, and without know. food, 
water, mm. shelter, nothing except that, which was provided by independent volunteers. Oh yeah, well, we're coming on to that point now about the United Nations and the authorities who are providing mm. assistance. Can you tell us about that? Because from what you're saying, this non-Syrian camp was not getting anything except from people who are doing it out of the goodness of their hearts. Pretty much. I mean, it's somewhat different now, um, but during the time that I was there, when I first arrived, there was no UN involvement. There were like a couple of, I remember seeing a couple of people in a UNHCR poncho who were running around trying to do the best that they could personally do with the very limited resources that mm -hmm. they had been allocated. Mm -hmm. But they were asking us for blankets and food and dry clothes during the storms. They had nothing of that. And my other encounter with UNHCR personnel in Moria, the non-Syrian camp, was a woman who was standing dealing with a group of families who wanted blankets as they were going to be sleeping outside. Mm -hmm. She became completely overwhelmed with these demands and just ran inside, was like, I can't handle this, threw her arms up in the air and went back in to the safety of her little space instead of actually dealing with the individuals who were in front of her. The only food that was there was given by volunteers out of their own pockets. So there was no presence of anybody like FAO or WHO or no. World Food Programme? No. no. Well, that's amazing. It was nothing. Because they're based in Rome, you know, not far from Lesbos, really, as the crow flies. When I arrived, it was the first day of the first of the winter storms. Mm -hmm. And for four days, it didn't stop raining. Mm -hmm. And um, at that time, um, refugees had to wait in line for registration. And if they left the line, then they had to start again from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And this line at one point was two and a half kilometers long. And when volunteers turned up with food provided by volunteers, mm -hmm. they found people who hadn't eaten in four days. Like it's and where did registration happen? In the camp. So these camps are for registration. So they arrive, generally they arrive on the north coast. Mm -hmm. um, and then from there it's 70 kilometres, give or take, um, to the registration camps. Mm. And before they're registered, they're not allowed to take a taxi, stay in a hotel, anything like this. How did they get the 70 kilometres to the registration? Uh, until recently, they were walking. Now there are some buses provided. When uh, Cypras came to the island to visit the camps, mm -hmm. they stopped all of the buses um, because they decided that the camps were already too full. They were at like half capacity compared to what they'd been. But they stopped the buses and they kept all of the refugees on the north of the island where Cypras wouldn't go. So mm -hmm. he only saw about that much of the problem. And during this time that the buses were stopped, people were like, we're not waiting. Like, we've got to go forward. They, they don't wait, you know, even when they get to Moria and they realise that they've got to wait days for registration, they're like, no, like, we've got to go forward. Mm. So they were walking it. They were walking 70 kilometres. But what about people who were very ill and just had a very bad crossing? Yeah. <laughs> Did they Good just question. pick up their bed and walk as well, or...? Like I said, the buses only came in recently and like people have been making this crossing for years. Mm -hmm. The first boats came over in like 
92 or 95, I think. And they've always had to make this 70 kilometer journey to the camps. Mm. And you, know, you have like, like you say, really old people, you have disabled people. Mm-hmm. There were people small coming, children. small children. Mm-hmm. And smugglers don't let disabled people take their wheelchairs onto the boats. <laughs> So people who go up to the boats to make the crossing in wheelchairs, they have to leave their wheelchairs behind. So if they're then coming over to Greece and there's, they, they have to find a wheelchair. That's extraordinary. Mm. Can, can you describe to us what happened when these people actually arrived at the beach? Because that's what we'd see on TV oh. and BBC. We'd see you know, some rubber dinghy approaching everybody screaming and, and so forth. What actually went on on, on the beaches? Did you witness this? Uh, once. Mm. Um, I stayed up on the north of the island for a couple of weeks, but mm. I didn't actually spend that much time on the beaches because that's where the majority of volunteers go. Mm. Mm. Um, because it is what you see on TV. That's like the, the mm. most sort of glamorous mm. aspect of the volunteering experience in mm. Lesbos is being there when they come in off the boats. Mm-hmm. So there's generally huge crowds of people waiting. Like you have people who are going along the coast with binoculars. So you generally know when there's a boat coming mm-hmm. and there's a crowd of people there waiting. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. people from different organizations are all jostling to be like the first one to be there with an emergency blanket, to be the first one to take the baby from the mothers. and. Then there's the media who were there with all of their cameras. And um, and how did they behave, the press? So badly, mm. so badly, like no respect for what these people had just been through. Like they would go to any lengths to get the story. So the volunteers give dry clothes to people because generally people are soaking wet when they arrive because the boats let in so much water. Mm. So they're like at least weights deep in water by the time they get there. Mm-hmm. If they're lucky, if they're not lucky, they're drenched from head to toe. Um, so while mothers are there like trying to change their children, they're in tears because they're so emotional from what's just happened. Like they think they're going to die out there in the ocean mm. when they terrified. reach there. Yeah. They're completely terrified. Mm. And then they get there after this intensely emotional experience and they're like, Alhamdulillah, like thanks to God, that you know, that is incredibly personal, powerful moment. Mm-hmm. And there's people shoving big cameras in their faces. Mm-hmm. Like, tell me about the tragic experience that you've just had. Tell me about these horrors. Mm-hmm. Like, they have no respect. They don't ask if they can take photos. They take photos. I saw like people pushing cameras away, but people, the cameramen would still push forward yeah Yeah. Yeah. I mean like I thought there was supposed to be ethics in journalism and if people refuse consent if people don't actively give consent you're not allowed to do this but they didn't respect this at all so they would not even ask for for permission to do this okay and would the press then lose interest when it came to the point that they have to walk the 70 kilometers yeah yeah they're there on the beaches they're there for this moment the media needed to be there in Moria, in this non-Syrian camp. And we couldn't believe it that they weren't there. So let's talk about the camps then. Mm. Were these camps set up previously? To the, were they just there? Moria, the non-Syrian camp, it was originally built as a detention centre. Mm-hmm. For So him. for illegal 
immigrants. Aha. So the, this had happened before then, the arrival of mm. immigrants? Yeah, it's been happening since the early 90s. Aha. And this was set up as a place to detain people. So the place where people who have been fleeing war, violence, torture, the mm. place that they arrive to, to claim safe refuge mm. from this, mm. is three layers of barbed wire and a high, high grey wall and riot police and the best night's sleep that they're going to possibly get is inside a barracks, which is a detention centre. So it wouldn't be easy for them to get out of this detention centre then? They're not legally allowed to leave before they have their papers, Okay. before they have their registration papers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they are kept there by the fact that they have to get these papers. If they leave without their papers, they can be arrested and deported. And like they're that. supposed to receive their papers there, in this camp? Yeah. So these are, um, it's leave to remain. Mm -hmm. And technically it gives them like 30 days to remain in Greece. And then they, it accepts that they, are, that they have come here illegally. And they have 30 days to remain in Greece before they return to their home countries. That's like the legal jargon of these mm. registration papers but what it in reality is it gives them permission to buy a boat if they have the money to buy a ferry ticket to Athens mm. and continue the mm. journey. But the implication being that when this permit runs out they could then be repatriated or kicked out of Greece mm. right? Mm. Okay yeah so and you said this camp where you were, they were mostly non-Syrians. Mm. There was a separation between the Syrians and the others. Yeah. Do you have any idea why this was? They have various like identifications for Syrians. Like there are translators floating around, you know, mm. and like mm -hmm. generally people are pretty upfront with it, like because they don't realize that there's going to be this discrimination. But you do get people pretending to be Syrian, mm. but they'll get found out later down the line once they start the like asylum procedure mm -hmm. in the ho in the country that they finally reach as to why i think it's entirely political mm -hmm. i think it's to do with the division between refugee and economic migrants the border between greece and macedonia is currently closed to anybody who is not syrian afghani or iraqi mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's good that they've included Afghanis and Iraqis in that, but like, what about Iranians? What about Palestinians, mm -hmm. Pakistanis, Eritreans, Somalians? Mm -hmm. You know, these, these like... Africans. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You've got so many of these arbitrary racist mm -hmm. distinctions being made about who is entitled to asylum. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the structural differences between the two camps, then the conclusion has to be that it is political. It's that there is more funding going into aid for Syrian refugees. So I'd like to talk to you about the role of the police as well. The police were varied. So there were some that were genuinely concerned about the refugees and were mm. doing their best to facilitate a smooth registration process. Mm -hmm. But then there were also some that seemed to be on this big 
power trip or I don't know how to describe it. But they seemed to genuinely believe that the refugees were animals. They were beatings. Mm. There was use of tear gas on groups of refugee families, children, old people were tear gassed. Where would they be doing this? Where would they be gassing them? At the entrance to the camp where they have to get in for registration. I mentioned the line. Uh huh. Uh huh. So the line would be for these gates. Yeah. And if you imagine a crowd of people who have been hungry for days, in a storm for days with no shelter, they all want to get in this gate. Mm. And so the way of controlling them that the police used was to tear gas them. When this happened, I was at a place, um, I was at a village just outside the main city of mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Lesbos called mm -hmm. Pikpa. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a place that looks after terminally ill refugees, um, very old people. Mm -hmm. um, and we had a family brought in from Moria who had been tear gassed. It was a mother and her two sons and she was asthmatic and they were completely drenched to the bone like it had been raining on them for four days and they'd been tear gassed i mean i just don't mm. know how a policeman can do this mm. to mm. a refugee like and i've people who were in moria at this time like when the gates were opened just before the tear gas the gates were opened and the crush of people came in and then they shut the gates straight mm. away, which mm. meant that families were completely separated. Mm. You had children inside and the parents outside. And like when these volunteers were trying to reunite the families, mm. the police were saying, what kind of animal leaves their children unsupervised? And this policeman then goes on to tear gas mm. children. I mean, just something that I was wondered, the police were speaking Greek, right? Mm. Did they even understand anything the refugees said? No. Um, <laughs> one of the nights that I was uh, working in the line, trying to organise the line, um, so I speak Urdu, which some Afghanis speak. Mm -hmm. The only way that we could actually communicate what the police wanted mm -hmm. was by finding an Afghani who happened to speak Urdu, mm -hmm. me explaining it to him and him mm -hmm. then relaying it to everyone else. So like there's no translation, there's no communication, it's just complete shambles and misunderstanding all the time. During the four days of storms, um, people, volunteers were um, pushing the police to open up. There, mm -hmm. there are these barracks mm -hmm. inside mm -hmm. that can I mean, a couple of hundred people can sleep inside. It's mm. completely basic, like you're literally sleeping directly on the floor. A couple Concrete. of them, yeah, yeah. Mm. A couple of them have bunk beds with like tiny flea-infested mattresses. There was an outbreak of scabies at one point, and the room wasn't disinfected before the next family slept in there. Didn't have enough blankets to give blankets to people who were sleeping inside. Mm. So your choice was sleep inside on the floor with no blanket or sleep outside and have a blanket. During the storms when it rained for four days without stopping, um, they didn't open up these barracks. So there was accommodation for people, for the most vulnerable people, but they weren't using it and they let everybody stay outside. Your role was to try and liaise with the police and these agencies, mm -hmm. try and get them to, uh, to house the most vulnerable people. At one point, that was a role that I did. Yes, once we were able to 
open up the barracks inside. Mm. Um, we would go around the olive groves at night and look, mm. looking for the most vulnerable families. Mm. And you then had to talk them past the riot police, essentially. So you had to go there and be like, this family needs to sleep inside because they have a six-month-old child, this sort of thing. And it was right. up to the police whether or not they would let them through. Right, and this is in the middle of the night. Mm. Yeah, 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 it was, mm. it was night by this point. And did anybody speak Greek? How did you get these riot police to listen? Mm. A lot of sign language. Oh. <laughs> Some I'm of them very speak interested in, in the actual dynamics of it. It sounds yeah. terribly like these stories about, frankly, you know, these camps in Germany. Mm. You know, except that, of course, you didn't get out of those again, apparently. Yeah. But, but these people would, at times, they would just say, we're leaving whether or not we've got the, the permits. Is that, is that right? There were times um, when people were asking if they could be deported back to Afghanistan. Uh, People were saying, this was during the storms, mm -hmm. when it was literally thousands of families sleeping in a mud river. They were saying things like, I came from Afghanistan because my family was being persecuted after my brother was assassinated. And I came to Europe to be treated with a bit of humanity. And now I feel like I'm not human anymore. Like, I'm sorry to have come here and imposed myself on you mm -hmm. like this. Like, mm -hmm. how do I get back to Afghanistan? Mm -hmm. And you what would happen then? I, <laughs> what can you say to that? I mean, we would just be like, no, like, don't, you know, have faith that it's... We just try to do something to make each individual's situation better for a temporary time because that's all you can do in that situation. Mm -hmm. But I mean, there you seems know, to be I mean, a lack of any kind of competent authority. Mm. I mean, so they could not turn towards some authority and say, okay, send me back to Afghanistan because that wouldn't happen either. And that was the only time that I experienced people like wanting to leave the camps without their papers. Mm -hmm. The rest mm -hmm. of the time, everybody was so desperate for these papers and so desperate to continue yeah. their journeys. Yeah. Yeah. I mentioned the family that were tear gassed and came yeah. to the village. Yeah. The next day when they like woke up and were kind of conscious again, it was still raining at this point and they were like, we've got to go back to Moria. We have to go on. We need our papers. We were like, no, yeah. stay here. Like you have a safe place to be. Just wait Mm -hmm. at least until the weather gets better mm -hmm. and then or you feel better yeah exactly yeah. Uh -huh. like rest you know take advantage of this opportunity for rest but they were like no no we've got to get back we've got to get back we need our papers we need to go forwards so why didn't this international machinery roll into operation this is what we were thinking like while all of this was going on whilst we were in moria in the storms we were just thinking where is everyone Mm -hmm. Like, where are the people that are supposed to be exactly. dealing with this? Like, mm -hmm. why are we dealing with this? Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. we will deal with it because it's not mm -hmm. like we're going to see something like this and just ignore it and be like, mm -hmm. it's not our responsibility, so we won't do it. It's not the responsibility of untrained, unpaid individuals mm -hmm. to be doing the work of organisations that train and pay salaries to people who are supposed to do these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And who maybe get international funding to do this Exactly. Kind of right, so what conclusion did you come to about that? They were just not 
up to speed or they did not intend to come or somebody was holding them back? Yeah, it's a, it's something that we would all spend a lot of time wondering and speculating about, mm -hmm. you know, what is the reason why they're not here? Why aren't they here? Mm -hmm. Because there's no way that they can't have known about it. It was all over the television all the time. Yeah, I don't know why they weren't there. I don't know whether it was an intention. I mean, at one point, I remember um, I hitchhiked to the north of the island mm -hmm. and got given a lift by an NGO guy who was working for an NGO called Euro Relief. Mm -hmm. And they were doing a lot of work on the beaches. Mm -hmm. And we were talking to him about Moria the non-Syrian mm -hmm. camp, and he was saying that he wouldn't let his teams work in Moria because he thought it was too dangerous for them, mm -hmm. because he saw the refugees as a threat, because their conditions were so bad that he thought it was dangerous for an NGO to go in there. He thought they would riot? I don't know what he thought would happen, like, yeah, he thought they would riot, he thought that it would be an unpleasant experience for people to go in there and help people. Whereas like the logic for me and for the people that I was with was mm -hmm. that if it is the worst situation, it doesn't mean it's too dangerous. It's mean, it means it's where the help You're is needed most there. needed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like we went into Karatepe one afternoon with a bag of art materials for kids and stuff and some musical instruments. Mm -hmm. And we went straight back out again because we walked in and like every need had been catered for. So we were like, well, any extra resources we have, we're taking with us straight to Moria. It's like systematic discrimination. It's mm. like systematic racism. That's kind of what it feels like. They were being actively discouraged. So yeah. <laughs> you would hardly discourage the others who maybe didn't know what was going on in Lesbos. Do you think people had information? Did they have feedback? Yeah, I mean, they have to because everybody, well, the majority of people that are coming through have got friends or family that have mm. made the journey. So they know how hard it is, but they're making it because what they're leaving behind is worse. Speaking to a Syrian friend of mine, he says, like, I don't evaluate my decisions based on whether I'm going to live or die. That just doesn't come into it anymore. The risk of dying, drowning, mm. crossing the ocean, everything that you're going to put up with, is worth it because what you're leaving behind is so much worse. Mm -hmm. Did they imagine that the international agencies would be there for them or had they not thought, that, thought about that? They generally didn't really know what they were arriving to. A lot of the time they'd kind of arrive and be like, where should I go next? Yeah. They'd be like, they wouldn't know, they'd have this kind of idea in their heads of getting to Germany. Like Germany was yeah. a country that they all talked about yeah. um, as somewhere that they were heading to, but they didn't know like the route that they were going to have to take. Mm -hmm. They didn't know the distances involved. They didn't know like that the UNHCR is supposed to be responsible for them. Mm -hmm. They didn't know that like we were unpaid volunteers. They didn't mm -hmm. know, sure, like, sure. I don't know what kind of expectations they have for like what care they're going to receive. We also heard that a lot of these traffickers were actually, you know, stealing their papers off them and stealing mm. their money and all of this kind of thing. Did people talk to you about the traffickers? The people who uh, they paid to get them to Lesbos? And... The smugglers. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. All the smugglers. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, you just hear one nightmare story after the other about the smugglers. Mm -hmm. I, Tell us something then. While people are waiting to make the crossing, they're kept 
in these camps up in the hills above places like Izmir, Ivaluk, okay. Bodrum, mm -hmm. along the Turkish coast. Um, and in these camps, like it's smugglers rule. They're mm -hmm. illegal camps, but the Turkish military knows about them because mm -hmm. they have the power to stop the crossings mm -hmm. sometimes. When Tsipras came to Lesbos, when Merkel was in Turkey, mm -hmm. they stopped the crossings for some reason. To do this, the Turkish military went and blocked the roads leading from these camps mm -hmm. down into the town so no refugees mm -hmm. could come down. Mm -hmm. In these camps, I mean, you hear about men having their legs broken, when they try to stop the smugglers from attacking women. You, they never say explicitly what happens to women, but they say that very bad things happen to women in these camps. A lot of the time when people see the boats that they're making the crossings in, they change their minds. They decide that they don't want to get in this boat. And then the smugglers either say, you won't get a refund, or sometimes they hold a gun to their heads and force them into the boats. Mm. And this is what happened, there was, this is how I found out about the wheelchair um, mm. situation, was um, mm. there was a guy who had tried to take his wheelchair into the boat with him, and when the smuggler told him, no, you can't take it, he tried to protest, and the smuggler held a gun to his head. These smugglers are bad. They are playing a game with these people's lives. The boats are not seaworthy. They're overcrowding them just for money because they so that they can make more money. They don't care if these boats arrive. This is what like after I went back to Turkey, after being in Lesbos, I met some people who were planning on making this crossing and kind of felt like I wanted to try and talk them out of it. But obviously I can't. Mm. Um, but just trying to make them aware that the smugglers genuinely don't care about their lives. Mm -hmm. They don't. But they are necessary because the land border is closed and because people need to get out of Turkey, they need to get to Europe. People are being forced to go to and interact with smugglers. They are being forced to go and pay a thousand euros to make this crossing, which for me was 20 euros because I hold a passport. If there is a ferry to Lesbos, for instance, why are they not able to take the ferry if they've got a thousand euros or whatever it is to give the smugglers, mm. are they not being allowed to get onto the ferry? Because they don't have the right documentation to enter Europe legally, so they wouldn't make it past the Turkish passport control. Turkish government are perfectly aware of this whole situation, so they're conniving with it. Exactly. The Turkish state okay. have to be complicit. There's no other mm. option. There's mm. no other conclusion that you can make. Mm. Um, for and they the could fact. crack down on this. They could stop it if they, they could. wanted to. I also think that the EU would have that ability to also, if they really wanted to. Mm -hmm. But the Turkish state certainly, because they have stopped the boats at times. Mm -hmm. And another thing that suggests, uh, that I would say conclusively suggests Turkish state complicity in this, is that the smugglers are ordering these boats in from China in their thousands. I mean, to have that kind of money going in and out of Turkey without the complicity of the state in some way with, mm -hmm. is, is not possible. Mm -hmm. not so possible. somebody's making a packet out of this and possibly recourse for the state as well. Absolutely, yes. The... And you think the EU could put pressure 
the EU is putting pressure on Turkey to keep the refugees in Turkey. Mm-hmm. I think that if they literally wanted to stop these boats, mm-hmm. they could. Right. Um, but I don't so think no they should. there's no political will to do this. No, there's no political will to do this. They've closed the land border, but they leave this... It's not a big bit of ocean to patrol, you know? It could be... Which also means it could be patrolled by lifeboats and rescue more people. Yeah, the measures that the EU are taking to try and... Uh, persuade Turkey to keep the refugees in Turkey. Um, part of these negotiations are that if Turkey holds on to the refugees, then in a few years' time, they could like fast-track EU membership for Turkey. But they are negotiating with a state who is responsible for human rights violations. Mm-hmm. So they are that desperate to keep the refugees in Turkey that the EU would negotiate with a state which is responsible of like for murdering journalists, both Turkish and Western, mm-hmm. for countless human rights violations. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it just doesn't seem like it fits like EU criteria. So Turkey wants to get into the EU, mm. right? And EU wants to stop them uh, releasing these or allowing these refugees to go. Mm. So the quid pro quo is if you keep the refugees, mm. we will give you entrance into the EU. But all of this is a bit never-never, mm. isn't it? And the mm. refugees are there now. Mm. And it, it would appear that the Turks are not really very interested in these refugees and they're not treating them well, are they? No, they're not. Um, so, so, so they're in a very invidious position. Yeah, I mean, one of the questions that people always ask me is why can't they stay in Turkey? Like, they're safe, you know, right. they're not in immediate danger there. Why can't they stay there right. until the war is over? Turkey is not a signatory of the 1951 Refugee Convention and Turkey does not grant asylum to anybody coming from the East they do from the West. People coming from really? the West can claim asylum in Turkey, but people coming from the East cannot, which means Syria, Afghanistan, anywhere else. Um, so they can stay. They can legally be in the country. They have this clause called musafir, which means guest. And it means that technically they're entitled to stuff like health care. But the practicalities of it is that it's very difficult for Syrians to access health care in Turkey. Okay. And it means that they have no no stability, no long-term vision. If you imagine that you're a student in the middle of your university and then you have to leave because of a war, um, you're not going to want to just go and hang out in Turkey indefinitely until the war ends, which you may think it may never do. Especially if you can't work. Exactly. So you've got no means of earning a living. Or maybe you can't even register to a Turkish university. Yeah, exactly, you can't. Uh, even if you could speak Turkish. Exactly. But, but then how can they stay in Turkey if they may not claim asylum? They're allowed to legally remain this Musafir guest clause that Turkey has. And what does a guest mean? A guest means um, they can come and they can be in the country, but they cannot be granted residency they're not allowed to work. They can just kind of hover around like yeah, until ghosts, it, until it essentially. Until to get rid of them. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. They have no security. No security. So the moment somebody wants to be rid of them, that's it. Yeah. They have no security. So, yeah, of course, like, like, you know, using the example of somebody in the middle of their university studies, they're going to want to carry on with their life. You know, your Mm -hmm. life has been destroyed enough by war. You're not going to then want to just sit around and tapping your heels in Istanbul until... Let alone if you had a very good job in Syria. Exactly. There was a big middle class in Syria. Huge. Very good education, medical services, all that sort of thing. What happens if you're professional? Well, this is what like many people um, don't actually realise, is that the people who are making these crossings, they are middle class. Mm-hmm. It costs a thousand dollars per person to make this crossing, mm-hmm. and if you think about like the rural population in Syria, mm-hmm. who have big families generally, you mm-hmm. know, going with mm-hmm. generalizations here, it's going to be like ten thousand dollars for a family to make that crossing, just to Greece, and then once they've got to Greece, they have to get up to yeah, you're only at the beginning. Exactly, mm-hmm. like. The work, you know, the poorest of the poor in Syria don't have the money to make this crossing. So the people that are coming over are professionals. Mm -hmm. They are qualified people who have been earning a living in Syria. And you talk to a lot of these people, I'm sure. Mm. And what kind of things do they tell you? And what do they think is the reason why all this is happening? Because they must be very, very disillusioned. One of my friends said that he used to... He and his brother, the night that they fled their home, they were sat there counting the list of all the countries in the world that had abandoned them, Mm. going through the list Mm. of all of the nations in the world that weren't there at that moment, coming to their rescue while Mm. the bombs Mm. fell from the sky. Mm. They're completely traumatised. Yeah, 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 they're they're traumatised. And they're being greeted with dehumanizing conditions. It's what they're being welcomed with. They lose all autonomy. Like once they've made that journey, once they go through the first registration, they're no longer like human beings. They just get processed, registered, processed, registered. They have no rights. As long as these people remain illegal, then anybody can do anything with them. And people like smugglers can make a lot of money from them. Right. So at what point do they become legal? As soon as they leave Turkey. So when they get to Greece, even if it's a terrible camp in the middle of nowhere, Mm. if they get some sort of documentation, that's a step towards being legal then? It's a step, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, They're still very precarious, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Because if they get to the border with Macedonia or something and they're not allowed through then... Yeah. What's going to happen to them then? People have been sent back from the border at Macedonia. Mm-hmm. People mm-hmm. have been sent back in buses to Greece, you right. know? You see all of the you saw all of the news about like the hunger strikes and mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. sewing their lips together mm-hmm. and stuff. They mm-hmm. despite all of this they weren't mm-hmm. let through. Horrible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They were they've been sent back to Greece and who knows who knows what's going to happen to them. I have no idea. But yeah, this is the problem with stuff like deportation. Talking to Pakistanis mm. who are almost certain to be deported, um, they, they have very, very little chance of claiming 
asylum at the moment with the way things are. People sell everything they have to get the money to make this journey. Right. And then they get deported. Right. And they're back to square one. They're back to where they left, but they have nothing. But deportation costs money, though. Deportation so costs who's money. Who's going to deport them? Because <laughs> so this seems to me that they are truly in a terrible position because they're sitting in a country that can't afford really to have them, uh. hasn't got jobs for its own population, and already has economic crisis. And they're simply not wanted, and it must be a terrible position to be in. But it seems to me there is no retreat position. No, the money for deportation comes from Western governments. And right. yeah, it's expensive. Uh -huh. Like, generally it's cheaper to keep people in a country than to send them back. Mm -hmm. This is one of the big contradictions with, like, the economic arguments against welcoming refugees is that it doesn't make sense in so many ways. You know, the UK, we're a rich country. It's an illusion that somehow we are a poor country. I like, can't afford it. Yeah, it's, it's completely untrue. If you look at the way that government spending and where government spending, mm -hmm. where the government put their money, mm -hmm. look, you know, if they were to stop arming Syria, if they were to stop selling arms to the Middle East, if they were to stop mm -hmm. carrying out airstrikes that mm -hmm. Syrian people are saying that they don't want, that, you know, that it's not helping them. We're doing it in this like, oh yes, we're doing it for Syria. We're doing it for our security. It's like, mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as you say, it's a very strange argument to say we, we haven't got the money to house them. And then suddenly we find the money down the back of the sofa to go and bomb Syria. So it seems there there are funds around. So there are funds around. The Syrians can't be sort of feeling happy about that. No. And as you say, from a Syrian point of view, it's very counterproductive. So let's talk more about that. So there are, let's say, that there's more than one enemy in Syria. Mm -hmm. There's ISIS, there's mm -hmm. Assad. There's al-Nusra, which is like the Syrian al-Qaeda, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, for Syrians, the big evil is Assad. There, he, he is the one that they want to be taken out. He is the one that is responsible, his regime is responsible for murdering many, 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 many people. Torturing. So they see him as the original problem. Uh, yeah. That's interesting. So they yeah. then... You know, ultimately, they say it's his fault what's going on. But what I do know about um, a Kurdish region in Turkey called Kobane is that uh, female guerrilla fighters there defeated ISIS within a month. Mm. And the Kurds are being brutally, brutally repressed by the Turkish state. Mm. But they are the ones who are actually able to and who are fighting ISIS and are defeating them, you know, rather than being repressed, they should be armed. I thought the West was quite keen on the Kurds. Politically, I'm not so, mm. I'm not so clear on where the West stands with Kurds. But they are very brave and they are fighting for their own territory, they're, they're fighting for their life. Aren't they're they? incredibly, incredibly brave, mm. especially these female guerrilla fighters, like they're legendary in the region, they're, they're the best. Why are the Turks not uh, 
helping them? And what sort of relations do they have with Syria at the moment, the Turks? I mean, what is going on there? ISIS are supplying oil, um, and it has been pretty conclusively linked to Turkish state. If you remember, I don't know how much fuss was made in the media in the West, but when I was in Turkey, there was the bombings in Ankara. Yeah. Um, there, that was almost certainly some sort of complicity between Turkish state and ISIS. Mm -hmm. That's what I find so interesting about this whole situation and the role that, that crime and organised crime has played in all of this. Like I'm quite mm -hmm. sure in Italy, where all these people are still continuing to come, I'm sure, Calabria, Sicily and all of this, I imagine, I could be wrong, but I imagine the Mafia is probably welcoming them with open arms. These people are incredibly vulnerable. They arrive there and, you know, probably what's the next thing that's going to happen? They're going to be, you know, organised crime is always very quick to pick up on some advantage there. They'll be in there. Exactly. these people and using them and doing something with them. Exactly. So the strange thing is all the stakes and don't seem to be doing anything with these people, let alone seeing there's some potential in there and some potential for good in all these refugees. Mm. The state cannot cope with it. But, but you know, people who are more on the ball, like sort of mafia-type organisations, are, you know, getting on very nicely, thank you. This kind of reinforces what we were talking about earlier, about how as long as these people remain illegal, anybody can benefit from them. There you go. That's Smugglers, That's mafia, sm yeah, exactly. So and therefore, what the West needs to do is to stop this illegal status thing. Exactly. Or whatever that means, they've got to do something to give them some status. Mm. Absolutely. Otherwise, all of this will just get worse and worse and worse, won't it? I think we should be really excited about the potential. I am a musician, so I always look at things from a music perspective. But I mean, think of musical movements that have been born out of mass movements of people mm. like blues and Rebetico, which came over with refugees from Asia Minor in 1920s. You know, we, we should be excited and welcoming rather than dismissive. Like you say with the mafia and people like that, they're going to be excited because they've oh, got yeah. a load of cheap labour yeah, to exploit. Right and it. I'm sure they'll know exactly. And don't mm. forget what you said to me previously, that a lot of these people arriving are professionals. Mm. You know, why don't we harvest their skills if you want to look at it from a very, you know, um, hard-nosed perspective? There are yeah. people who are probably highly trained as medical professionals, as every yeah. kind of professional under the sun. Exactly. Why, why aren't we using them? Because God knows we, we need them. And in mm. this country, you know, there are more doctors from foreign countries than anywhere else in Europe, I believe. Or what about, you know, welcoming the Syrians and having them in our health services? Yeah. Well, well, why not? Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, you know, it's not as though they, I mean, they're being treated as people who are nothing, who have no skills, who have no value, who nothing but sort of parasites or mm -hmm. whatever terrible kind of way they've been referred to whereas really they they have 
there's a lot of potential in there for us, even if we can't think of it from a humanitarian mm. point of view, to have compassion for them, we could be a bit more savvy and think this could be actually good for our benefit. The problem with this is that we leave so few options for them to actually come legally. This is the thing, everyone is like, oh, why are they coming here illegally? It's because they can't actually come here legally. I know people that have been trying for years to uh, get to Germany through student visas and stuff like that and haven't actually been able to do so. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you, we, we are from a nation where we can essentially go anywhere that we want. We can decide to study in Australia, we can decide to study in India, in France, in South Africa, and we can apply for student visas and we can go. But two if we want. <laughs> exactly. This is not the case for people from Syria, Afghanistan, mm. Pakistan. So they don't have rights and they don't have the freedoms that we have. The legal routes are not open to them, but does that mean that their movement should be restricted and ours shouldn't be? The main thing is that being a refugee is an experience. It's not an identity. You know, mm -hmm. this, is, mm -hmm. this is not all that defines these people. They are people with, with histories. They're people with Quite. lives, yes, you exactly. know, before, mm. they, before they had this experience of being a refugee. And I think recognising that is, is a good first step towards moving towards some sort of acceptance of them. They got stuck in a sort of limbo mm. area where we're yeah. not recognising them and not... Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, they cannot return. Yeah, no, they can't return. Do you think these people will ever be able to return? Something... Well, if you happen? claim asylum, you can't return to your home country. So ah. this is why uh, certain people I know have been trying for so long to pursue the legal routes to Europe. It would be much easier for them to just get on one of these boats, but they want to be able to go back to Syria to see their families. And when the war is over, have the option of going back to Syria. That sort of thing, just normal things. Like if I was studying abroad, I'd want to go home and see my family. If you go and claim asylum somewhere, you don't have the right to go back. But asylum yeah. is a one-way system. Then. It's a one-way system. I didn't realise that. Mm. So once you claim asylum, you could never go back? Not as far as I know. Asylum law is very complicated. There's a lot to it. As far as I understand, it is a, a one-way sort of thing. Because you're saying that you, that you cannot stay in your home country, that it's too dangerous, that there's some sort of persecution that's stopping you from being able to stay there. So if you can then go back, it, in, it invalidates it. It's not just that it's like too dangerous there. It's like e even in, in places where you know, the bombs aren't falling all the time, like life is faded away, you know, life has been completely disrupted in every way. There are no jobs, there are, you know, there are no universities, mm -hmm. children aren't going to school, you know, life is... The infrastructure has been ruined completely. Exactly. Mm -hmm. The infrastructure has been completely destroyed. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, even in places where you're not being constantly bombed, like there's no, there's no future. Mm-hmm.
There's not even a present. No, no, there's not even a present. I mean, you talk about a limbo, like being in Syria, like being in a limbo. If one were trying to think what could be done about this situation in a positive way, how could Syria be reconstructed? <laughs> Is there any chance that no, this would happen? I don't think so. It's too late. Well, that's too really late. Terrible. The price has been paid, you know. People have already paid the price. Syrians have already paid the price. They've already lost everything. There's going to be a generation of children who will have never seen Syria. It's going to be a generation of children who are all they're going to know of Syria is what their parents tell them, what they hear about in songs from stories. grandparents' stories. Yeah, you know, mm. they're not going to know Syria at all. Very sad. I wish very, very much that I had seen Syria before the war, because it really feels like something has been lost. They say Damascus was beautiful. Oh. It's a complete wreck now. Yeah. It's... You know, and ruined by the own government as much as everybody else. It's a complete tragedy, the whole thing. It is, it's, it's, it's a tragedy. So this is one of the great events of, of our time. Upheaval of the whole situation in the Middle East, but also coming to roost with us and so on as well, that we cannot escape this either. No. And sort of consider that it's irrelevant to us. So there's lessons for us as well in this. Yeah, I think there are. I think that even, you know, on an individual basis, there are ways that we can work towards a future that's not horrendous, that's not hopeless, but it can be difficult to see it like this at times. But if one has a political will, you can reconstruct countries. What I'm wondering though is who has the will to rebuild it? I mean, Obviously, ISIS have got got very clear ideas that they'd like to to run this. Yeah, ISIS and Assad. Assad already has plans of reconstruction for Homs, displaying the the success of the regime and built on the murders and assassinations of so many people. Uh, because all of the people that that were against this despotic regime are either now like in Europe or have been killed off in the fighting, mm. you know, but they have no choice but to leave. They can't stay because their lives are in danger. So, so then you'll be heading back to Istanbul? Yes. <laughs> and what's the plan for Istanbul then? Uh, we will see. Uh, not entirely sure. Um, had been planning to go to Lebanon to uh, suss out what was going on in the camps there. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, if we think that there's lots of refugees in Europe, there are more in Lebanon, Jordan, mm -hmm. Turkey. But nobody knows what these camps are like because you can't get into them. This is what I then found out, is that all of the camps are on the border with Syria. You've got ISIS, you've got Al-Nusra, the sort of Syrian faction of Al-Qaeda. And uh, you don't mess with these forces, you know, kidnappings left, right and centre. You don't 
there's it's just not worth the risk so yeah. decided not to go to Lebanon mm. so kind of yeah head back mm. to Istanbul and take it from there presume you'll be meeting up with these refugees again yeah although they're uh, friends are your friends really now? Yeah, yeah yeah they're they're my friends you know people that I just spend my normal spend time with <laughs> well I think we should wrap it up mm. Harriet thank you very much thank you on behalf of Blind Spot and ah. all of us <laughs> and we hope to hear from you further and have further reports from you wherever you go I want to thank Harriet for taking the time to sit down with us and tell us about exactly what she'd seen and to give her insights to exactly what is going on in that region and further afield. I'm sure in the coming months we'll get Harriet back and then she can update us further on the people she's met, the stories she's been told and the insights she's gained while working in that region. You can watch a video of that interview on our YouTube channel or just go to our website, which is blind-spot.net. If you would like to email about the interview or anything else, please email us at mail at blind-spot.net. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as blindspotnet. And we have a Facebook page. Just type in the blind spot. You'll find us there. Uh, we're now on iTunes, so please subscribe. Or if you prefer SoundCloud, you can listen to us on there. I would like to end this podcast by reading from an article that I published on the site on the 31st of January. As we like to do on the podcast, we'll read articles from the website because you might not have seen them, you might not have time to read them, or you might be visually impaired. So I wrote this article called Don't Stand By, and it goes something like this. 27th of January 2016, Holocaust Memorial Day. The theme for 2016 is Don't Stand By. As explained on the HMD website, the Holocaust and subsequent genocides took place because the local populations allowed insidious persecutions to take root, while some actively supported or facilitated state policies of persecution. The vast majority stood by silently, at best afraid to speak out, at worst indifferent. Bystanders enabled the Holocaust, Nazi persecution and subsequent genocides. On this very day, David Cameron in the House of Commons, in response to a question by Jeremy Corbyn, tosses out the dismissive a bunch of migrants when referring to people in the Calais camps. Other recent news stories include asylum seekers marked out by having red doors and coloured wristbands, the Danish parliament approving the seizure of refugees' assets, Angela Merkel's position under threat from being too welcoming to refugees the proposal to close Greek borders, trapping refugees in the country, masked men in Stockholm attacking refugee children, and 10,000 refugee children missing as Europol warns of gangs targeting minors for sex work and slavery. It's difficult to keep up with the events so fast they are escalating. The days of refugees being welcomed across Europe seems long ago, like another time, one that was purer and more innocent and that was only September. Since then, the stream of displaced, traumatised and vulnerable people, including thousands of children, has continued, while European countries continue to abdicate responsibility. 
Refugees are forced to live in a limbo state where empathy, compassion and love seem not to exist. Even the reminder of the Holocaust that should act as a true north for Europe until the end of time isn't preventing a whole continent from choosing a dark path where death for thousands is the inevitable outcome of inaction. In my recent esoteric article on the imagination, I talk generally about fear and apathy and how destructive they can be. This continued refugee crisis is an example of these forces in play. The British government has stated it will not take in refugee children who are stranded in Calais, orphaned and alone. This is shameful. We should be taking them all, every last one of them. There is no other moral course to take. Without assistance, these children will die or be taken by traffickers and become a commodity, bought, sold and abused. And as a country, that'll be on us. I've heard the argument made, often put in empathetic terms, that Britain would help if it could. With no money, no space and no system, that's unfortunately not possible. That we can't even look after the children here or get British people off the streets. That the NHS is at breaking point. That our system simply can't take any more. I agree these concerns are very real and they need to be addressed. Yet it is absurd that in one of the richest countries in the world, we lack the resources to help not only these children, but other refugees. Between 1938 and 1939, Britain took in thousands of refugee Jewish children through what was known as the Kinder Transport. The government allowed the children to enter the UK on temporary travel visas, with citizens and organisations funding the rescue operation. The children were dispersed throughout the country, living in different arrangements from foster families to group homes. The majority would go on to stay in Britain, with others joining family members in other countries when safe. Additionally, at the start of World War II, with the looming threat of German bombing, millions of children were evacuated from towns and cities in Britain to rural areas. There they would stay with host families, sometimes for years. It might not have always been a pleasant experience for some of the children and families involved, but it did keep children away from the falling German bombs. This was an enormous voluntary undertaking that spared children from the immediate horrors of war. If the people of Britain did it then, we can do it now. If the resources aren't there to handle the incoming children, temporarily reassign people. Ask for volunteers on a mass scale. People will help. Get the faiths involved. They already have a structure in place for volunteers. They have buildings, they have communities and families. Let's mobilise people and organisations to deal with this problem because it's not going to go away. And the longer we wait, the more refugees will die. At the very least, the government should leave the door open for individuals, families and organisations to save these children. I recognise this is not my field and I don't have the answers. I just think surely there's more we can do. If you want to reject refugees due to concerns about ISIS, the spread of Islam and threats to your way of life, you should know that ISIS wants nothing more than the West to reject these people. They want the West to show itself as exactly the heartless, narcissistic and indulgent society they say it is. And for us to reject these people who are pleading for our help, that is to turn them against us. That is what makes them our enemies. Embracing them, taking them in, that is how one builds a safer society where people look out for one another. That is community. That is family. That is a country of which to be proud. Even with all the fear-mongering in Britain, there is this idea that our society will continue tomorrow much like today. Yes, there might be a decline. 
that the old days were better, but our way of life will endure. The reality is no society is more than one disaster away from cataclysmic change. In our lives and the lives of our children, we might be forced into a position of needing to get into a boat and cross dangerous waters in order to survive. We might need to travel vast distances in search of help when there is nothing left of our country, nothing left of the home we once knew. We might need to choose between death at home or possible safety at the end of a treacherous journey. And if we're able to endure and reach the gates of safe haven, exhausted and traumatised, can we have any objection when we're not let inside? Can we truly say we deserve entry? I want that answer to be yes. Right now, it certainly isn't. Thank you once again to Lewis McHale for the music for this episode. Find more of his work at lewismchale.bandcamp.com or look him up on Facebook with Lewis McHale Music. Thank you for listening. Talk soon.